0: Welcome to the Revolution and Ideology podcast, our series specifically called Myth is America. I'm Jared. I'm Nick. And today we are going to be talking about further extension of the Federalist discourse after the War for Independence and after the signing of the United States Constitution. In prior episodes, we've discussed how federalism was at first spread through propaganda during the constitutional era by the Federalist Papers and John Jay and Alexander Hamilton and James Madison. And then we saw it in practice with the inauguration of the Washington Executive uh, branch and uh, the exertion of federalism on the economy through Hamiltonian economics, and that's actually it that was one of my favorite episodes because then we get to see that even for the holdouts that were more for individual or state liberties, how they're basically coerced, or let's just say it, they're forced into a federal entity through these economic uh, measures. And 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 again, that's basically to get all the holdouts on board, like you're going to be part of this this federal enterprise whether you like it or not. Well, now we're going to see federalism spread in a little bit different way through, quote unquote, foreign policy and rampant American militarism. And that's another way to kind of, again, forge this very federalist, if not, and I don't want to use the word yet, but it kind of comes into fruition during this time period because of some associated events across the Atlantic, but nationalism, like manufacturing a heavy <clears throat> nationalist identity. And again, the United States had used propaganda and legislation and a powerful executive branch, and then the economy to do so. Now we're going to see how they do it through, again, militarism and uh, and and their views on foreign policy. So we're going to pick up at first. We're we're actually to kind of preview the episode. We're going to focus on two types of foreign policy: foreign policy with the First Nations, which must always remain like present um, in the forefront of our minds. How big a role? War on indigenous people was in the framing of this country and remains to this day uh, now through willful ignorance. And then, of course, the second part will be war or almost war with actual foreign nations, one of which was a a pretty good friend of ours for a minute there. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. So let's pick right up there. The first foreign enterprise I want to talk about deals strictly with land theft and dispossession. So once again, and this has been a theme in this podcast and in the classes I teach and, and so on and so forth, but a treaty was signed back in 1783 that ended the war for independence uh, with the British and other people are involved. It's called the Treaty of Paris of 1783 and, and all these great um, ambassadors and diplomats show up in Paris and, and they basically carve up territories after the war like Europeans tend to do and now apparently Americans. Except the one group of people not invited, whose land is the land being carved up, are the numerous First Nations that find, or that call, that had called this place home for thousands of years. Uh, again, I'll ask Nick probably for the third time in this series. Why leave them out? I mean it's not like – it's not even a thing where they don't know they're there anymore. There's no – there's no. this is now just pure cognitive dissonance. It's more than that. Why why not invite any of them? Why not send representatives from the Shawnee Nation or the Miami Nation or the Delaware Nation? Why?
1: Because that would be giving them some kind of status and you don't want them to have any kind of status or any kind of humanization if you're still focused on wiping them out.
0: Okay. This is erasure, right? Erasure from being able to attend these meetings in Paris is erasure from the land. Anyway – it's been a common theme, so I'm not going to kind of continue to beat it. If you want more on indigenous land dispossession before the, the constitutional era, we've definitely got episodes on that. All right. We're going to pick up in the Dirty South, which aside from doing awful things to African slaves, they continue to uh, ethnically cleanse indigenous people as well. For example, in the growing state of Georgia, 20,000 new white settlers begin to encroach specifically on Muskogee Creek lands. Um... And when I say encroach, it means that essentially they're encroaching on lands that even under the Treaty of Paris had been designated to uh, foreign entities, whether that be Sp- – well, in this case, Spain. Um, and so basically they're, they're illegally crossing borders because they want this land. And they don't necessarily want to be part of the land speculation profiteering that is taking place up north. So a lot of them are just seizing it. Uh, some good examples of this, though, is to show how corrupt the political institutions were at the time, and this is for local politics in Georgia. We have uh, two real quick examples, the Yazoo Land Scandal, in which Georgia politici- t- politicians basically uh, sold large tracts of native territory, so Creek territory, to political insiders at very low prices in 1794, like lower prices than than what they should be going for based on the already corrupt speculators' prices, Um and it went so far that it was even brought before the Supreme Court. Again, not because the indigenous brought it before the Supreme Court, but because other, other, other colonists brought it before the Supreme Court in Fletcher versus Peck of 1810. And it pit the state of Georgia against the United States itself. In other words, the United States wanted to actually have a say-so in how this land was dis- being distributed, and they actually went to court with the state of Georgia to try and decide how this was going to work out. Uh, but eventually, time and investment by whites pressured the Fed to allow Georgia to continue to allow these land sessions and settlements to take place. It kind of goes back to a thing we talked about during um, basically like Pontiac's Rebellion, uh, and the British were forced to deal with the same thing. They told their settlers, don't do this, but as settlers continue to not listen and go, settle lands they're not supposed to the british feel pressured to basically protect them because every lost british life looks bad on them well here's the same thing these georgia settlers that are starting wars with various southern tribes they're going to then require protection by the united states government they the united states government even though they're doing what they're not supposed to be settlers are basically going on beyond the borders the u.s government will feel pressured to protect them another example of this is the pine Barrens. well i just spe- want to yeah.
1: mention i think it's We have to point out just the absurdity of the fact that in the court system, the United States government and the government of the state of Georgia are battling over this land and we can't skip over the fact that it's not even either of their land. Right. Ridiculous.
0: Well, yeah, that's the biggest issue is they're battling – just like at the Treaty of Paris, they're battling over who gets to steal land. Essentially, that's what they're (laughs) – the United States Supreme Court is deciding – do we get to steal this land federally, or do we get to steal this land as a state? Right. Um, it's gross. All right. The Pine Baron speculation took place between 1789 and 1796, in which the governors, a series of governors, actually three of them of Georgia, in office continue to gift lands, uh land grants. Um, to individual wealthy investors and settlers. And the reason this is important is they, they're not even selling them, so there's not really revenue being created. This is basically three separate governors of Georgia giving land, that is Creek land, to their friends, their family. It's basically nepotism. They're giving this way land. They gave away so much land between 1789 and 1796 that the land they gave away was three times larger than the original state of Georgia was. That's how much land they were giving away. In a mere seven years, and again, it's not their land to give away.
1: So where is this land if it's outside of the state of Georgia? So
0: it's... the state of Georgia was originally a lot smaller than it. Oh God! It. It, okay. So it's kind of how Georgia got as big as it was. Now there's other parts that eventually would become uh, what Alabama and Mississippi as well that are being given away. So it does get. So I guess if you're if you're looking at a map right now, which probably none of you are, but yes, it goes as far west as uh, Mississippi. Um, Okay, so, and this is where we, uh, the creek begin to resist. This leads to, uh, and rightfully so, obviously tensions are quite high on the western borders uh, of Georgia. And so uh, George Washington, well-known uh, ethnic cleanser already at this point uh, for his actions against the, excuse me, his orders to John Sullivan against the Iroquois uh, Confederacy. Um, in fact, that even granted him the name. I'm not sure I brought it up yet in the series, but Conoticarius, which basically translates from Iroquoian and Algonquian into town destroyer. That is his official indigenous name. George Washington's name is town destroyer. He sends uh, the secretary of war. Henry knocks down, uh, along with agents to negotiate directly with the Creek indigenous people due to the rising tensions. And they target a specific, um, Creek sachem or chief, whatever you choose to call him. His name is, uh, Alexander, uh, McGill, uh, I can never pronounce it, McGilvray. Um, he is actually not full blown indigenous. He is half Scottish, half indigenous. Um, and, it's interesting that they choose Alexander. He had actually adopted more of a white lifestyle, to be blunt. He still lived among the creek, but a lot of them didn't necessarily trust him because of the white lifestyle that he adopted. He actually, he assimilated. In fact, he's a pretty good symbol of why U.S. leaders at this time and for the next about three decades began to call Five southern tribes, the civilized tribes, the five civilized tribes, the Creek and all of it, the subnations of the Creek, the Cherokee, the Choctaw, the Chickasaw, and even to an extent the Seminole were called the civilized tribes because many of their members, in in when facing extermination, like the, the tribes of the Northeast, decided to assimilate um, to some level. Alexander represents that. He had a plantation. He had land holdings. The dude even had like 60 slaves. So... We're not necessarily supporting Alexander here. He was seen as the chief for the Muscogee by the whites. They picked him and identified him. He was not really seen as like the sole representative of the creek themselves. In fact, most of you that have... Uh, heard about the way indigenous organization and politicking took place before white people showed up, no, there would not ever be any one single leader or what we call a chief. That's just not the way it worked. Most things were done by consensus. There were representatives called sachems, usually chosen by matrons. If you want more of this, we have a video on natural democracy um, that you could check out on this channel. Long story short, he does not speak for the Creeks as far as the Creeks are concerned. Knox does go on to convince um, 28 other uh, chiefs to all come with Alexander to uh, New York City, where a treaty is signed. It is the very famous Treaty of New York. And this treaty establishes the Altamaha and the Oconee Rivers as the new boundary between the United States and the First Nations, and that the United States does agree to remove the illegal whites that have crossed this border. In return, uh, the various uh, uh, Creek nations will return fugitive slaves who have run away. You see a lot of slaves, and we did this in the transatlantic slave episodes, the two of them, would run away in the South and join First uh, First Nations, and many of the First Nations would welcome them into their more circular egalitarian societies for a couple of reasons. First, they're used to adopting people because that's the way conflict worked um, in in the more circular fashion. Secondly, they're also losing a lot of people, so again, replacing members with other new members um, would absolutely help uh, perpetuate the life cycle of that society. And then finally, yes, there's there's a common enemy here, right? Like the, the white settler mentality is wreaking havoc on both African slave populations and indigenous populations. Um, so some nations like the Cherokee, uh, uh, were a little bit more conservative and actually kept slaves themselves and one or two Creek, as we just talked about, like Alexander did. Other nations like the Seminole, specifically the Black Seminole, um, would allow them to actually have, they would basically be do- adopted as full-blown indigenous people. So, when the Treaty of New York uh, comes down the pipeline and the Seminole hear about this, they absolutely re- refuse to follow the treaty. They are not sending back any of their runaway slaves. In fact, like uh, we said in a prior episode, they have an entire subnation known as the Black Seminole by then that is made up almost entirely of runaway slaves, and they refuse to follow the treaty, um, which is important because in a future episode, we'll get to the Seminole Wars, and this is going to be one of the like key components of the Seminole Wars and Andrew Jackson's attempt at basically destroying and, and killing them all off. There's also a secret provision in the treaties that not all of the First Nations are aware of. Alexander himself would actually be, in, during these treaties, commissioned as a brigadier general of the United States with a salary of $1,200 every year. And he would get a special permission to continue his import-export business from Spanish Florida, which at the time Florida was still Spanish. So he still got to make a living that way. Um, I don't know. I mean, what do you call Alexander here for? It's a sellout. I, I don't. Straight
1: up, <laughs> it's ridiculous.
0: Um, the Creeks, once they hear about the entirety of this treaty, argue that the treaty is completely invalid. This is not how they do business uh, one, not one, not 29 people speak for an entire nation. That does, that's not the way indigenous culture works. The nation speaks for the nation, not these people. They can't, you can't just pick and choose who you choose, who you want to negotiate with because you're going to think you're going to get favorable terms because they don't represent the will of the people. Again, you want to know a little something about democracy. Look at how indigenous people run their societies, not the United States. It's not how it works. Meanwhile, in the north, it's getting dirty up there too. You see, that Ohio Valley is prized. Remember, this whole series of events starts because of the Ohio Valley all the way back in the French and Indian War. I don't even know how many episodes ago this was. Doesn't matter. But it starts because the British speculators from the Ohio Company of Virginia wanted to grab that land, sell it off, speculate, send people out there, farm, sell the British dream, which later became the American dream. It all started back in the 1750s. Well, now um, the chickens are coming home to roost. All right. The settlers continue to grab land in the Ohio Valley, but there are conflicts in the Ohio Valley because after the war for independence, there are some remaining British outposts there. Uh, The British still have territory in Canada, and they also have some, it's still debatable, how far south they go into the Ohio Valley. So there's still remaining British outposts there, um, and most importantly, there are still the First Nations that refuse to leave. Um, and what this means is it keeps the 1st American Regiment fighting in the West well after the War for Independence. So the 1st American Regiment is, is continuing to fight both the British and First Nations well after the Treaty of Paris out in the West. Um, they're led by a general named Harmer. And he's out there building a series of forts, um, and uh and, and even in some cases leading the signing of various treaties, all of which in the Ohio Valley are forced under threat of war and ethnic cleansing. And I must stress that, like again, you're you're getting people to sign treaties basically at gunpoint. Like you either sign this treaty or we will wipe you from the
1: face of the earth. That those are Harmar's terms. I what do you think of that? I mean, clearly that's not voluntary, like and you, it, yeah, it, the whole thing's ridiculous. A number of the First Nations that
0: call the Ohio Valley home, like the Shawnee, the Miami, and the Potawatomi, hold fast. They refuse to sign off on these treaties and they form a resistance. He eventually, during this time period, goes on to build the very famous Fort Washington in reverence to, of course, none other than his executive. Uh, For those of that are curious about uh, dumpy towns in the Midwest, Fort Washington would eventually become Cincinnati and to this day still smells like wet socks. Sorry, Ohio, you're the armpit of America. Anyway, uh, in 1789, he builds Fort Washington and it will be his new launching spots for campaigns against the First First Nation. Uh, Secretary of War Knox, Henry Knox, shows up again and orders campaigns, orders Harmar to campaign throughout Western New York and Western Pennsylvania as well. The reason Knox wants those territories cleared out – so basically, Harmar going to turn now east a little bit and, and worry about western New York and Pennsylvania a little bit. And again, there's no fixed border yet at the time, so New York actually extends a little further than even it does today. Um, the reason Knox orders Harmar in the 1st American Regiment to go basically wage war in these western territories is because he personally had investments there. He stood to make a fortune on those lands. I want to stop and pause. The Secretary of War, a member of the Executive Cabinet of the United States, orders war for personal financial gain. This is in 1789. The Constitution was signed that very year. The country is baby fresh. It is brand new. And already the first Secretary of War is using his power and authority to make money for himself. Thoughts?
1: Oh, where to even begin? I mean, uh, it, it shouldn't even be surprising at this point. It's funny that back then he would just directly do this. Right now it's through this veil of defense contracting companies and all of these more complex systems, but the exact same thing still happens. I mean, we're kidding ourselves if we think that it's not.
0: And General Harmar rolls through with 1,300 militiamen, 353 regular troops, and is officially ordered to destroy Kekionga, which eventually becomes Fort Wayne, Indiana, um, as he turns back west. It is the quote-unquote capital—we say quote-unquote a lot— Anyway, of the Miami Nation, and I say quote-unquote in this case because, like, again, First Nations didn't necessarily have capitals as we, like, know and love them. Um, but it is a, a regular place where they would hold um, meetings and councils and, and and basically their political and economic uh, traditions of reciprocity. That would take place in Kekianga. Anyway... After his campaigns in western New York and Pennsylvania, Harmar turns west and goes out towards uh, basically trying to eradicate the Miami nation. A new militia is made it, made in the south to move north and help with this. It would be known as the Kentucky Militia. The way they're going to help, since they're kind of like a ragtag band, they're not well, well-trained soldiers, their only orders are basically to create a distraction by burning civilian villages along the Wabash River. So they're not going to engage in formal conflict with Miami warriors or Shawnee warriors or Potawatomi warriors. These folks are merely going to go to the villages and burn them down. That's what the Kentucky militia is sent out there to do. Unfortunately for them, a native resistance would be led by the Miami Sachem Little Turtle. Uh, who used his shrewd guerrilla tactics to basically thwart this dispossession and this removal. He seriously—he and his warriors seriously whipped U.S. ass. Um, it, it's actually kind of embarrassing how bad Harmer and his 1,300 militia and 353 troops lose to Little Turtle and his warriors. They, they, You'd think they'd know how to handle the guerrilla warfare at this moment in time, but Little Turtle was always—and st- his forces were always one step ahead Um Unfortunately, the burning of the villages did take place by the Kentucky militia because Little Turtle's forces had to face off with the troops rather than going to also take on this militia as well. Basically, they had two targets and they could only face one. So Little Turtle basically ends up winning this early war, but they do lose villages along the way. Um... The last battle of this series is known as the Battle of the Wabash, and it takes place on November 4th of 1770, and Harmer and his forces are forced to retreat all the way back to Fort Washington. Again, that would become Cincinnati. One of the things that take place on the battlefield after the victory by Little Turtle's forces is this practice of scalping. It doesn't originate there. It doesn't even originate along the Atlantic coast. And some historical sources still debate whether it was originally a white practice or an indigenous practice. But regardless, what we do know is that Little Turtle's warriors did scalp, um, the, uh, the fallen, the, the fallen U.S. soldiers. The reason I'm emphasizing this is actually probably not overly to, cr- Critique the Miami. I mean, I don't know that it's a practice I would want to follow. But at this point in time, when you're trying, when you're facing the apocalypse, and these people are basically, they're stopping at nothing to kill you off. I, I can see how that might make tensions a little bit high. What I want to talk about is how it's framed. So there's two things after Harmer and his forces lose the Battle of the Wabash. First and foremost, it's an embarrassment um, for uh, Washington and Knox and everybody, and they're really pissed off. But secondly, What little press there was at the time, that's all it emphasized was the savagery of the First Nations um, and their desecration of the dead. We know this is propaganda. We know how this works. What they're trying to do, what the media is trying to do, and when I say media, it's basically a handful of journals and newspapers. But regardless, what they're trying to do is frame the indigenous people as the enemy, as the belligerents, as as perhaps even the the starters of this series of conflict, basically to justify calling them savage, to dehumanize them, and further perpetuate the ethos of ethnic cleansing.
1: We think. Yeah. I mean, there's just the irony, the gall of the white media to call the indigenous peoples uh, to call them out on their desecration of the dead is absurd.
0: Yeah, I mean keep in mind, again, if you've heard our prior episodes, the the pilgrims themselves, the Puritans, like these ah, these cute little people with like buckles on their shoes and shit, like their second Thanksgiving took place around the severed head of an indigenous leader. The hypocrisy. We keep using that word throughout this, and that's what Myth is America is about. That blatant hypocrisy of the foundational era. Unfortunately, it doesn't stop in the foundational era, but those are for future episodes. Harmer himself, the general, is eventually court-martialed for what is called officially an embarrassment. Um (laughs) That's fine. And and that's kind of the end of his military career. Um, and it's into this like atmosphere that we get the main battle, a bigger battle in 1794, I guess. It's not the main battle. It takes place, what, four years later? The Battle of the Fallen Timbers, which re- basically regretfully turns the tide of the war towards uh, the United States. Uh, the Battle of the Fallen Timbers is, is, is a major turning point. It takes place four years after the Battle of the Wabash. This battle is usually featured in U.S. history um, through the lens of Major General, and here's his nickname, Mad Anthony Wayne, and his 2000... 2000- Uh, troops. He actually had a few Choctaw and Chickasaw scouts with him, um, and they're basically sent in to redeem the United States in what would officially be called the Northwest Indian War. It now has a name, the Northwest Indian War. So it's interesting to think about when you think of wars in the United States history, most people don't think of these as wars, right? We start with like the War for Independence and the War of 1812 and the Civil War and back-to-back world wars, and so on and so forth. Most people skip the Mexican or the Spanish-American uh, wars. Anyway, when you actually include indigenous wars, wars the United States waged on the First Nations, the original inhabitants of this country, the United States has been at war for almost 100% of its entire existence.
1: I also think that clearly it's not an accident that those war- that war is glossed over in the historical narrative because it... Like, I hear this all of the time. It's, like, embarrassing how much I hear this. This statement of, like, well, why didn't the indigenous fight back? They fucking did. And no one knows that because this period and these specific actions are never taught in any of our history courses.
0: Yeah, I, I'm at this point in my life, and this might be controversial, where I'm just basically done hearing, like, the white colonial mentality on this entire era regarding, ind- I mean, the opinion is completely invalid. Mm-hmm. I, I just flat out say this at this point. You are too ignorant to have an acceptable opinion on yeah, the white Native American relations. You, you yeah, don't get to have an opinion. Um so like you just you don't get to have an opinion. Gulag. <laughs> yeah, the United States did that. They they did. They they used we we, we didn't call them gulags because we weren't speaking Russian, but yes, we did. We we had labor camps and we'll get to those uh, a little bit later. Okay. I want to go back, though, to one little piece there. One common thread in some of these victories that we've talked about so far in this this series is whether they were British victories or now American victories is that there was always a couple of indigenous allies that they were able to talk into helping. So King Philip's War, the only reason the British win that is because the Mohawk turned on Philip's forces um, or uh, the Mingo were helping at the onset of the uh, French and Indian War. Well, here's another example. The Choctaw and Chickasaw, again, from those five, quote unquote, civilized tribes of the South, these representatives or these scouts were sent to help scout out uh, basically Little Turtles forces. Again, whether we're talking about Alexander or we're talking about these scouts, like, I mean, what do you think of that? Why? Why? It's just scouting so but, it's
1: this is interesting because it comes up all of the time, and I think it's often used as an excuse because people say, like, well, they clearly must not have been that bad because some of the indigenous were willing to help them out. But, like, that's not how it works. This is a super common dynamic that exists in almost every struggle like this where there will be portions – of the quote-unquote victims on the side of the battle that will join forces with the uh, oppressors. That's just going to happen because the oppressors usually are shrewd and use various tactics to make sure that this happens. And so, like Jared said earlier, if you're facing complete destruction or assimilation, oftentimes some people will choose assimilation. just just the way that it is.
0: Like the Vichy French during, like, the Nazi occupation. Yep. Or even the Loyalists during the American War for Independence. I mean, it's just, you know okay anyway the british end up uh throwing their hat in somewhat with the indigenous nations so they actually get a colonial ally um and they're willing to try and help back the miami and the Shawnee because the british um have a vested interest in maintaining some sort of influence in the west um coming down south from canada uh Another indigenous, again, like kind of war party leader. I hate using the word leader because, again, it's, just, it insinuates that they have the same kind of like political, uh, structure as we do, but not necessarily the case. But Blue Jacket eventually, he gains consent of the people to be kind of the, the one that is, is, is organizing the resistance. Little Turtle's still involved, but, and this is the way how indigenous societies work. It's the amount of consent that you get from the people through their willingness to participate that usually gives you prominence in your society. So there's no like electoral process or anything like that. And slowly but surely, in those four years between the Battle of the Wabash and um, the Battle of Fallen Timbers, Blue Jacket had gained a little bit more influence than Little Turtle. Little Turtle's still there, and they're more or less working together, but Blue Jacket will gain the consent of the people in guiding them in this conflict uh, against the Americans. So what we have as far as like indigenous quote-unquote leadership is Blue Jacket, Little Turtle, F- Turkey Foot, Roundhead, and uh, Bakan Their forces are made up of, and these are, this is the now new confederacy of resistance, the Shawnee Nation, the Delaware's Nation, the Miami's Nation, the Wyandots Nation, the Ojibwa's Nation, the Ottawa's Nation, the Potawatomi's Nation, and now even the Mingo's Nation. All of these nations represent the resistance to the American advance in the Ohio Valley. Matt Anthony Wayne and his American forces actually do get the, the leg up by kind of, this term had not been created yet, but kind of a blitzkrieg strategy where it's kind of like a fast moving, like no holds bar press against the indigenous resistance lines. Um, and it forces a momentary retreat. Again, it's only a momentary retreat by all of these First Nations, and they're basically looking to get back to Fort Miami to reconvene, re-strategize, get some reinforcements, and relaunch an attack on, um, on uh, Anthony Wayne's forces. Unfortunately, there is a British major in charge of Fort Miami. His name is William Campbell. And he takes a line, a hard line on this and says he refuses to help in any way and even refuses some of them entry back into the fort. So the British, like I said, at least on paper are willing to help the First Nations. But when it comes to actually putting it to practice, they refuse to aid them. And the indigenous people, under the agreements they thought they had made with the British, were counting on that, especially in this retreat area. And when the resistance doesn't come, whether that resistance is in British troops or weapons or anything, the uh, Confederacy begins to collapse. And it all is because of this like major like first push by Wayne. That push doesn't isn't supposed to end the battle. It's merely a part of the battle, but because everything kind of collapses due to the British basically selling them out— the battle of fallen timbers is 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 kind of a it's i don't want to say it's a massacre because it doesn't it doesn't have as many deaths as even prior battles but it is it's i don't know what you would call this i mean it's 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 a battle that leads to basically the end of these battles for the ohio river because the indigenous people felt almost, i mean there was almost like this 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 feeling of defeat after their their ally that they think they can really count on basically you know throws them out
1: it's like a moral defeat
0: It is. It's a moral defeat, and the resistance begins to collapse. Why do you think British Major William Campbell goes back on the original promises of helping the First Nations? When they were counting on them, though, that was going to be a major part of their strategy, that they could engage in guerrilla tactics while the British would engage in the more formal military tactics.
1: I don't know, but I'm assuming because they wanted nothing with starting a second war for independence. That's clearly. It. That's, I mean,
0: that's exactly what it was. He did not want to have to start another war with the United States, although it's kind of funny that we're on our way to a second war with the United States. The War of 1812 is just around the corner. Um, anyway, a treaty is signed after this retreat. It is the Treaty of Greenville. It's signed in 1795. This is a treaty that I will re- be referring back to specifically in an episode that will be dedicated, dedicated to Tecumseh. The Treaty of Greenville of 1795 established the north-south border of both Ohio and Indiana, um, which the settlers again ignored. Even though the border is set by the treaty, they settle well beyond the border over and over again. It granted the Western Confederacy that I just described, all of those First Nations, $20,000 in various goods and annuity payments. A lot of these annuity payments would be in alcohol. Keep that in mind when we talk about Jeffersonian dependency later on in this series. Um, It also institutionalized government influence in tribes. So this treaty basically basically institutionalizes the fact that the United States government will now have a say-so in how tribes conduct themselves, at least at first, economically. And then later it will be politically as well. And then later it will be socially as well. Like that, it's all coming down the pipeline, but it starts with this like economic subservience. And again, Thomas Jefferson is going to take this a step further with Jeffersonian dependency. It was his strategy to subdue these nations. And by the time we get to, you know, the mid 18th or excuse me, the mid 19th and late 19th century, we've got full blown like boarding schools and the Bureau of Indian Affairs and, and all of this nonsense. So we're well on our way to that after the Treaty of Greenville. We'll pick up with the First Nations in the future episode on Tecumseh. Again, he's going to get his own, um, and the resistance that he leads. We're going to now switch gears, as I promised at the beginning of the episode, to, uh, a little bit more of a, uh, international. It is international, I guess, on this continent, but whatever. I guess what we would normally frame as international topic, international federalism. So. In the prior episode, prior episodes, we should keep in mind that um, after the George Washington era, we have a rise in federalism versus anti-federalism sentiment going along the Atlantic seaboard. And eventually the anti-federalists will coalesce around the idea of democratic republicanism. And slowly but surely we have the actual forming of political parties, which is a great irony because some of the actual architects or framers of the nation thought parties were a dumb idea and they tried to avoid them. And it's funny, after one freaking executive turn, we have political parties. How'd that happen?
1: you are dumb. I mean...
0: <laughs> so uh, for all of the things that we can discuss that are anti-democratic, like non-democracy in the United States, one of the most undemocratic things that we allow to exist are two-party systems. Yes, I get it. Um, there technically can be as many parties as you want, but let's be realistic. Throughout U.S. history, whether we're calling them <coughs> Federalists or Whigs or Democrats or Republicans, it's always a two-party system. Like, realistically, it's always a two-party system. The antithesis to dem- democracy right there. You're basically choosing between, a South Park put it, a giant douche and a turd sandwich in every election. <laughs> Gross. Anyway, this factionalism, and I'm using the word factionalism specifically because James Madison was warning against us, warning us against factionalism, lasts basically through the John Adams term and into the 1796 electoral process that awkwardly brought Thomas Jefferson into being the third president. And I say awkwardly because it's eventually decided in the House that he'll be the third president. Anyway. In terms of context, though, this is all taking place. We're basically in this time period between the Adams and Jeffersonian um, presidencies. It's also during this time that there is a major, major upheaval of ideologies, institutions, etc. taking place in France that deserves an entire series of episodes we do teach the french revolution quite often it's one of our favorite topics to discuss not necessarily just to celebrate it but to denigrate some of its dumb ideas like nationalism um but that will get its own series of like we'll do podcasts on that. So I am not going to try and describe the entire French Revolution right now in in Myth is America. But I do want to stress that the French Revolution um, is partially because of what happened on these continents. First, the French and Indian War, which the French lost, and then the War for Independence, which the French technically won. They won for the Americans, but the Americans could not pay them back quickly. So long story short, just like the British before the War for Independence, France is in debt. And the series of Louis, first the fifth and the 16th, are trying to figure out a way to make back this debt. And in Louis's case, a lot of the debt is owned to his own nobility, and he basically sells out the third estate, sells them down the pipeline, which they had been sold out for a long period of time, and the revolutionary process begins. That's oversimplified because, again, the French Revolution deserves its own entire series of, of, of episodes, and I'm not going to do it here. What I want to stress, though, is the revolutionary process in France that is led at first by even people that had served here, like the Marquis de Lafayette and even Thomas Paine, really goes much more radical than the American War for Independence. That's why we call it, we call it in this podcast, the French Revolution in the American War for Independence. We refuse to call the American War a revolution. I, it was just not radical in the upheaval of social ins- and economic and political institutions france is and to give you an idea of what i'm talking about is they overthrew institutions there that were thou- well over a thousand years old first absolutism you see unlike england france was an absolute monarchy it was not a constitutional monarchy so there it is the king his court his council what they say it went and they overthrow that absolutism through a series of processes. At first, they allow the king to stick around in constitutional monarchy, and most of our listeners know eventually that was no longer a thing, off with his head, and Marie uh, as well. Anyway, they overthrow absolutism. That's a huge change. The other thing they overthrow, feudalism, this basic economic slash political slash social system that had existed again since basically the collapse of the Western Roman Empire in France is overthrown 1,300 years later. So people, like this entire way of life, this entire way of framing everything is overthrown in a mere two years. It really changes the game there. The other thing that they don't overthrow, but basically remove all of its authority, the Catholic Church. So these three big institutions, absolute monarchy, feudalism, and the Catholic Church are either completely removed or their power is so checked that it fundamentally changes the entire life of the people of France. Filling in the void are some new interesting ideas that many of the people watching from overseas, i.e. the Americans find kind of scary, are ideas like nationalism really begins to spread. um, And this idea of wars on absolutism, so wars on ideology rather than just like people and territories, like these are some radical ideas. Um, Even the Declaration of Rights of Man and the Citizen, if, if you have an opportunity, pull that up and compare it to the American Bill of Rights and you'll see that the Rights of Man and Citizen, again, 1789, just like the Bill of Rights, is so much more radical. Uh, one of my favorite examples is written in there I think in the second one I don't have it in front of me is the right to resist oppression the French people write it into their foundational document that they have the right to resist oppression and before our American leaders say or our American leaders our listeners say you have the same rights I don't I have the right to peaceably assemble but I do not have the right to resist oppression those are two very different things There is no—it just says resist oppression. There's no, like, series of, like, laws and stuff attached to it, at least not originally. You do what it takes to resist what you consider oppression. It's why France is on its Fifth Republic. Some say that, ah, it's not stable. Well, that's the point. Keep trying until you get it right. We don't do that here. That's what I'm talking about. The French, way more radical. Anyway, we could spend all day me celebrating the French Revolution. Um, I also want you to know I don't celebrate everything French Revolution. Some of these ideas I think are dumb as hell, nationalism being one of them, as I already mentioned. But other things that kind of come from this era is this idea that all men are born equal. That, that's actually in the first part of the Declaration of Rights of Man and Citizen. Keep in mind, that word is important. Men are born equal. Not created, like in the United States, they're born. We see a little bit more Enlightenment era scientific empiricism being shown off here, uh, and perhaps removal of some of the church's pull by merely changing that word. But the other key component of men all being born equal is this eventually leads to the abolition of slavery in France. And slowly but surely, word of that, through folks like toussaint Louverture makes its way to Haiti. And slowly but surely, Haiti rises up in insurrection based on these Enlightenment era ideals coming from their mother uh, country, France. And we have the first successful slave revolt uh, that basically overthrows not just its own um, colonial power, but then fights off other colonial powers in the name of France and Spain, or excuse me, England and Spain, and leads to the independent country of Haiti. Again, the Haitian Revolution also deserves its own episode. I'm not going to do it right now. But what I want to stress is coming back to the United States, you're watching this radicalism in France. You're watching slaves overthrow their masters along with the help of free blacks and a whole bunch of other – the class system there is much more complicated than slave owners and slaves. But again, that's for another episode. But essentially what you're seeing is slaves overthrow their masters in Haiti, and that one's just like – that's a stone's throw away from your territory And a lot of the American politicians are freaking out. What are they freaking out about? Again, I didn't do the French or Haitian revolutions justice here because we just don't have time. They deserve their own episodes. But the ideas stemming from them and the actions stemming from them are scaring the shit out of American politicians.
1: Yeah, they're horrified that their ideas from France and Haiti will make their way somehow into the United States. And they obviously want nothing to do with that. It's not just ideological. We also have an actual conflict
0: with France brewing as well. So I want to talk about that. In 1794, the United States, in its Federalist um, aims to become economically viable, this is guided by Alexander Hamilton again, who already has his own episode for us, signs the Jay Treaty with the British, and this trade—it's basically a treaty with the British to uh, basically facilitate trade and a growing economy. This pisses France off, and basically, France is, like, are you kidding? You just got done fighting them, like, 11 years ago, and technically you're still fighting them kind of in the West. You just signed a treaty with them? You hypocrites. That's, I mean, the French cannot understand this. We helped you. We nearly bankrupt ourselves helping you win this war. And you sign a treaty with our enemy, because at this point, England and France are beefing again.
1: Are you they s- ever not beefing?
0: Well, yeah. Well, now, ish. But yes, during this time period, they're beefing off and on all the time. Basically, what this treaty also forces the United States to do is remain neutral in all British and French um, conflicts. And the French are pissed. Why would the French be so pissed that the Americans will now remain neutral in all French and British conflicts?
1: Well, because they just helped them win the War for Independence. So you would think if you're French that you had just gained an ally and now... Not so. The cowardly, selfish, entitled American
0: leadership just took all of that French help. They wouldn't even be independent without France. And then they have the audacity to turn around and sell France right down the river. Mm. We will not help you defeat the British like you helped us defeat the British. This is one of the most overlooked parts of U.S. history. These politicians, this leadership, I'm not even talking about the American people here. This this American leadership, however, are the worst. The laundry list of awful, awful hypocrisies. It's almost never ending. We could talk about indigenous people. We could talk about slavery. We could talk about socioeconomic stratification. We're even seeing it in fucking foreign policy here. They would not have any power or leadership if it were not for the French Navy bailing them out of a war they were getting their asses handed to them in. And they have the audacity to turn around and sell the French right down the river. We will not help you against the British.
1: What do you think of that? I think it's interesting that we start to begin to see here revealing itself economic global economics playing itself out at this point because that's basically what's motivating the american leadership here right it's it's economics it's purely economics at this point
0: point. and it is it's hamiltonian economics you want the clincher everyone want the clincher listeners you want the clincher not only will they remain ne- under this treaty remain neutral in all future british and french conflicts they will now no longer pay back the debt that they owe france for the war for independence I want to repeat that. Again, the French not only fight in the war for independence, but they bankroll it. There is debt owed to France, and the Americans decide we will no longer pay back that debt because we made that agreement with the monarchy, not the republic. That's their excuse. What kind of unappreciative, entitled bullshit is this? Yeah, it can't even.
1: It's just, like you said, the laundry list is just ridiculous.
0: Think about how the United States deals with the debts owed to it by foreign countries. If you don't pay,
1: invasions on the way. Yep. This is our foundation. Well, and we talked about in the episode on Hamiltonian economics, actually it might have been the Constitution one, where the first thing they did was ensure legally that the debt that was owed to them was still valid under the new government. They're looking out for themselves for sure. Yeah. They'll still take back their debts, mm-hmm. their own debts,
0: but they will not pay their debts. Mm-hmm. This is how the rich work, and this is the foundation of the United States economy. So if you wonder why you can never get ahead, follow the paper trail all the way back to the seven, to the 1700s because it's not just here. It's the speculate. It's everything we've been talking about. This is our foundational trajectory. We haven't gone awry in the modern era the largest socioeconomic gap in human history does not exist because we didn't follow the founding ideals. It exists because we did. It exists because we did. I'm pissed. France responds and authorizes their privateers in the Caribbean to start seizing U.S. ships, and the United States starts screaming, no fair! Any ship trading with the British in the Caribbean eventually would be seized by the French Navy and their privateers, and they would then take the ships and all the goods on them and then sell them. Basically to help pay back the debt. Like, okay, you're not gonna pay it back willingly, we're gonna take it back our way. No fair! Awesome. It is freaking awesome. By 1797, France had seized over 316 United States merchant ships. <laughs> it's the best. And the U.S. couldn't do anything about it because they still don't have a... Navy. Oh, God. They're like, we we needed a Navy to defeat the British. So, France, can we borrow yours? Yes. And it works. But then they don't have a Navy yet. So, France just uses its Navy to force back payment on this debt. I love it. I love it. Viva la France on this one. Not everything, but on this one, hell yes. This leads to one of the more famous events that I think a lot of listeners have at least heard about during this time period. The XYZ Affair. So John Adams was still president at the time. He sent diplomats, a diplomatic uh, commission to France in 1797 to basically negotiate a solution. So big bad America, big bad America, you know, back-to-back World War champs can't actually compete here because France is whipping their ass. So they send an apology party to Paris to be like, hey, can we fix this diplomatically? Oh, God. It's hilarious. Uh, these representatives, led by Pinkney, who also has some executive like campaigns going on, uh, Marshall and Jerry, they're approached by agents of the French foreign uh, minister Talleyrand. And basically, these uh, these agents are demanding bribes and loans before they will even negotiate with the Americans. It's a little underhanded, yes, but like that's, I guess, what's going to happen. You're. You, 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 they wanted bribes. They won't even negotiate unless you give them some money. The event name, this like affair, comes from the fact that in the official documents of the Adams uh, administration, those French agents are their names are substituted for X, Y, and Z. So those French agents X, Y, and Z are the ones that approach Pinckney, Marshall, and Jerry and the rest of their their commission to basically be like, look. We would like an end to these hostilities as well, but to even negotiate, I don't have a French accent, but to even negotiate, <laughs> to even negotiate, we're going to need some dough. Um, anyway, uh, Pinkney and friends decide, Hey, we're not going to do that. But eventually Jerry, one of the U.S. Uh, commissioners does stick around and eventually is slowly but surely able to work out an agreement to slow down the French, the growing French and American conflict. Once the initial failure of the First Commission, however, went public in the United States, American politicians began to lose their collective minds. Like, how dare France do this type of underhanded politicking, which was actually pretty common in all European politicking, but apparently the Americans are above that because of everything we've talked about so far. They're, you know, definitely holier than thou. So essentially, this large undeclared war that's that's forming leads to a large militant ramp-up in the United States. And the way they're doing this is essentially again it's it's almost kind of like Cold War style between except now it's it's the United States and France, but this basically Fear mongering. Fear mongering is in all the press. Fear mongering is now on the broadsides. It's basically fear mongering of the French threat and the possible, as as the as the conflict rages on, the possibility of Haitian slave revolts making their way to the south. Like all of this takes place, and it becomes kind of like it, it's in the uh, Habermas's public sphere. This is what people are talking about in the public sphere. The fear of foreigners, xenophobia becomes like rampant during this time. Ugh. Yeah, I
1: just it's like. This is so common throughout American history of, like, this whole sky is falling, like, ethos when, like, you fucking started it.
0: Yeah, in every case, the Americans started. In every single damn case, the Americans started. You don't want Native Americans, like, whatever, fighting back. Don't take their shit. Don't take their shit. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, okay, back to the story. Fear of foreigners and xenophobia becomes rampant during this time, and it is used to manufacture patriotism to the federal cause. It is only the federal entity that you must turn to, not the state militias anymore. You need a federal authority to save you, baby. Look to Uncle Sam, even though that's not really a thing yet. This is important because, again, the whole theme of this episode is federalism in practice. We've seen it in practice economically, legislatively. Now we're seeing it through foreign relations. Look to the Fed to save your ass. Yes, please. Please save me, Big Daddy, Uncle Sam. It works. They're able to appropriate funds in Congress to establish, and this is the official establishment in 1798, the United States Navy and the United States Marine Corps. Established in 1798 because of this undeclared quasi-war with France. Cash rules everything around me. That's what we're seeing here. That we will now appropriate our tax funds to fund essentially this military, which they already had the standing army. Now they have the Navy and the Marine Corps. Not to protect American citizens, I must stress. They were specifically in Congress formed to protect the trade routes in the Caribbean.
1: I mean, and if we go back, like they're essentially willing to spend the funds to put together a military so that they don't have to pay back the debt to France. That's if we go back to the beginning of this whole affair. They could just the paid back the debt and not had to worry about and it.
0: And I'm sorry if, for those that served, but the Navy and the Marine Corps are formed so the United States does not have to pay back its rightful debts to France. That's a very auspicious origin. <sighs> Congress then nullifies the 1778 Treaty of Friendship between the United States and France. Keep in mind, France signed this. It is the first country to recognize the United States exists, to validate it on a global scale. And the United States ends that treaty in 1778 because it refuses to pay back its goddamn debts.
1: It's funny. It's like two friends and, like, one of the friends calls the other out on their bullshit and then the other one's like, fine, we're not even friends anymore. Congress authorizes the United States to then attack French ships with its new baby navy.
0: Um they use they do this through um the Act of 1794 which then appropriated new funds to build this navy and How, Yeah, Force. that's what I
1: was going to ask. How do they even have ships at this point?
0: The Act of 1794 basically it's like it's it is it's basically this act is passed and all of those funds mean they're going to ramp up like Where are they getting
1: them from the British? The boats? They're not building them themselves.
0: No, they actually are building a lot of them. And that quickly? Yeah, and they're pretty quick. I mean, some of them are already at construction and you can change them from like merchant ships to yeah. more warlike ships and stuff like that. You have to keep in mind, and I'm actually going to bring this in, I guess, right now. They also have Alexander Hamilton's Revenue Cutter Service. Remember? Oh, yeah. the Coast Guard. Mm-hmm. They also have them. And so the Revenue Cutter Service is also down there trying to engage in this conflict. I'm going to skip a lot of the naval battles because, no, I'm not going to skip a lot of them. I'm going to skip every single one of them because they're super boring. But basically, listeners, naval battles between Hamilton's revenue cutters, the brand-new baby U.S. Navy, and the French privateers, naval battles take place through the 18, through the year 1800. The Convention of 1800 ends it, and it basically means that the United States— are no longer going to be friends like they used to be, but they will remain neutrals. They will remain neutrals. And the other thing that the United States must agree to, or else French will bring the hammer down in the Caribbean. They're required to stay the fuck out of the Napoleonic Wars. That's what France wants because those are on the horizon. Stay out of our shit.
1: Well, it's kind of weird though that like the whole reason France got pissed is because they were going to be neutral. And then that was one of their concessions. Like they're willing to just give that up. Well, so back in France, there's power
0: transitions taking place. So the negotiations, the, the, the framing of negotiations has
1: changed. I mean, France also has other shit going on. Like, you that's just my said, point. They're yeah. in the middle of revolutionary processes. Yeah.
0: So that's what I'm saying. Leadership is, is, is changing. I'd have to have my French Revolution notes right in front of me to remember what the transition in power was between 98 and 1800 mm-hmm. to see who they might be negotiating with and who's really calling the shots. I don't have it in front of me, but yes, it is, it's in a, a state of flux. Um, In the meantime, back home, in this era of xenophobia, manufactured patriotism, and the hate of everything foreign, we have the passing of some legislation, and that's how we're finishing up this episode. I want people to keep this in the back of their minds. Freedom! In the form of the Alien and Sedition Acts of 1798. Get her done, America. Freedom. Freedom. You see, we had a federalist-dominated Congress, and federalism can spread in this case through war, aggression, manufactured militarism, and that manufactured militarism can lead to fear, and that fear can then be legislated upon. And so now we see federalism making its way back into legislation. It started with legislation. The Constitution itself is a federalist agenda, and now it's making its way back. We're coming full circle. Federalism through legislation. Again, we went through the economy, we went through propaganda, we went through foreign affairs, we went through wars on First Nations, we're seeing it with the French, and now we're full circle. Legislation, the Alien and Sedition Acts of 1798, challenging the individual liberties of, well, actually the individual citizen and the state. How do they rationalize this? And God, this hits home for all of us living in the here and now. We're going to take away some of your rights in the name of, and I quote, national security. Let me rephrase that. National security. I didn't rephrase it. I repeated it. That's what I meant. Damn it. No, seriously. It's about national security. Don't mind the fact that in 1789, we ratified the Bill of Rights, and it's basically 10 unalienable rights. In 1798, nine years later, they don't mean shit to us. We will wipe our ass with at least, I'm trying to think of the ones that are violated right off the top of my head, one is absolutely violated, and four and five are absolutely violated. That's three of the first ten amendments right off the top of my head that are going to be violated by the Alien and Sedition Acts. I mean, before I even dig into the acts themselves, how can we like – in a modern sense, am I being too hard on these people? How can they – but I I do. I ask the question, how can you violate the Bill of Rights nine years after you sign the Bill of Rights? The the ink isn't even dry yet.
1: I mean I think part of the overarching message of this entire Myth is America series is that the policies that they put in place – and even less so the policies, but the sentiments behind the policies and the laws, the economics, etc., lay the groundwork for future actions, I think this is just an example of that. They didn't give a shit about the Bill of Rights in the beginning. It was a concession to get the Constitution signed, just like we talked about. They didn't care about any of this. In fact, they probably, both, the majority of them didn't even want it. So at the first chance that they have to do something to uh, minimize the impacts of those rights, they'll take it. They'll jump all over it.
0: Without further ado, here they are. The acts, the first one, an act concerning aliens is its title. Different kinds of aliens. I'm just going to paraphrase this one. There's no juicy quotes in here. Section one of this act basically states that the executive can seize, fine, imprison, and deport any foreigner suspected of a crime and bar them from citizenship. Whatever. Section two, that the jailing terms of these people are at the discretion of the executive. In other words, the president himself can make these calls. Section three, all ships coming to the United States ports must now report to customs and report any foreigners on board or be fined $300. This is basically the beginning of the customs service. Section four, all courts, local, state, federal must now subscribe or answer to executive marshals. That is an overextension wow of power section 5 aliens or foreigners can take their shit with them if they get deported well that's nice there's a little concession <laughs> and section section 6 is that this act will be executed over the course of 2 years Not the juiciest one, but we can see some overstepping there by the executive branch, especially over how individual courts are going to handle this.
1: I mean, and God, this is so current right now. You know what I mean? And we have, it is. And we have to keep
0: in mind, though, like, also, every one of these asswipes was a foreigner
1: at one point in time. Exactly. I mean, yeah, I just want to stress that, but... With all of the issues surrounding immigration and so on right now in the United States, and people are like, how can this be a thing? Well, it started back then. All right, the next one, it's a little juicier. An act respecting
0: alien enemies. Okay, section one, and now it is a quote directly from the act. That whenever there shall be a declared war between the United States and any foreign nation or government, or any invasion or predatory incursion shall be perpetrated, attempted, or threatened against the territory of the United States by any foreign nation or government, and the President of the United States shall make public proclamation of the event... All natives, citizens, denizens, or subjects of the hostile nation or government being males of the age of 14 years and upwards who shall be within the United States and not actually naturalized shall be liable to be apprehended, restrained, secured, and removed as alien enemies. This takes it a level up. This isn't now just any foreigner, if you're accused of doing something bad, can be deported. If you're merely from a place, a place we decide is bad— and you're a dude over the age of 14, done. Donezo. You're out of here
1: or you're in prison. I mean, this, again, is just foreshadowing. This is how we end up with Japanese internment camps. And this is, I mean, I, ice facilities all over the country. Like, I mean, this is ridiculous. Starts way back then. By this, a country of immigrants. Yep. God, and the funny thing is, like, nowadays in 2019, we, like, lose the fact that this was, country was founded by immigrants. Like, it's because it's so far, like, back then. It was, like... A couple of decades ago for these people.
0: Yeah. They, this – it shows the, the selfish nature of yeah, these individuals. Uh, yeah. We're not sharing our shit. We, mm-hmm. we stole this shit rightfully and we're not sharing it. Section 2. It shall be the duty of the several courts of the United States – Authorized upon complaint against alien or alien enemies to the danger of the public peace or safety and contrary to the tenor or intent of such proclamation or other regulations which the president of the United States shall and may establish in the premises premises to cause such alien or aliens to be duly apprehended and convened before such court, judge, or justice, and after a full examination and hearing on such complaint. There's a lot going on there. Mm-hmm. Essentially, what we're seeing here is that, again, the executive gets to make the call on these types of cases, which is an overarching extension of federalism. That's the key there. So this is not even necessarily, that part of the act isn't necessarily for us to challenge the idea of immigration. That's showing executive power over local, state, other county courts. In this legal extension of federalism. Section 3, I won't read from, uh, but I will paraphrase it. I'll I'll paraphrase all the sections. But Section 3 basically states that warrants are issued to marshals locally and or federally must be executed. So you cannot be a conscientious objector. If you're a marshal and you're serving, you uh, will execute this order or face the wrath of the United States government. This is kind of the birth of U.S. Marshals, honestly, right? This is my favorite one for those of you that are like, freedom! An act in addition to the, or an act in addition to the act entitled, God this title, an act for the punishment of certain crimes against the United States. You like your First Amendment, this is them saying they give two shits about your First Amendment. Section one. If any person shall unlawfully combine or conspire together with intent to oppose any measure or measures of the government of the United States, which are or shall be directed by proper authority, or to impede the operation of any law of the United States, or to intimidate or prevent any person holding a place or office in, un, in or under the government of the United States from undertaking performing or executing his trust or duty and if any person or persons with intent as aforesaid shall counsel advise or attempt to procure any insurrection riot unlawful assembly or combination whether such conspiracy threatening counsel advice or attempt shall have the proposed effect or not that is a lot going on in one sentence He or they shall be deemed guilty of a high misdemeanor and on conviction before any court of the U.S. having jurisdiction thereof shall be punished by a fine not exceeding $5,000 and by imprisonment during a term not less than six months nor exceeding five years. And further, at the discretion of the court may be holden to find sureties for his good behavior in such sum and for such time as the said court may direct. I know that's complicated writing. They write laws that way, obviously, intentionally, because, A, it's kind of how people wrote and spoke at the time, but we still actually write laws this way to make them actually ultra confusing so that us, the commoners, um, can't really di- dissect them. But long story short, anybody that challenges anything United States at this point from a federal level shall be subject to this fine and prison. So remember, when I just said, I don't know, 20 minutes ago at this point, the French during this time have the right to resist oppression in any way they deem fit. And here, nine years after the United States gained its—well, no, excuse me—nine years after the United States creates its Bill of Rights and its Constitution, uh, that—that's being taken away. You don't even have the right to peaceably assemble now unless it is deemed lawful. Which means now to even peacefully assemble, you have to go get like permits and stuff. John Adams, Federalist Congress, all of them. Uh, section 2. If any person shall write, print, utter, or publish, Or shall cause or procure to be written, printed, uttered, or published, or shall knowingly and willingly assist or aid in writing, printing, uttering, or publishing any false, scandalous, and malicious writing, or writings against the government of the U.S., or either house of the Congress of the U.S., or the President of the U.S., with intent to defame, or to bring them, or either of them, into contempt or disrepute, or to excite against them, or either of any of them, the hatred of the good people of the U.S., or to stir up sedition within the U.S., or to excite any unlawful combinations therein, for a Opposing the resisting any law of the United States or any act of the President of the United States done in pursuance of any such law or of the powers in him vested by the Constitution of the United States, or to resist, oppose, or defeat any such law or act, or to age, encourage, or abet any hostile designs of any foreign nation against the United States their people, or government, then such person being thereof convicted before any court of the United States shall be punished by a fine not exceeding $2,000 and by imprisonment not exceeding two years. Again, lots of words there because so much of it is grossly repetitive. But long story short, let me get back to the beginning of the act. You cannot write, print, utter, which means speak or publish anything that challenges the glory of the United States. It's presidents, it's it's Congress, it's laws. You're not allowed to, again, you're not even allowed to say
1: anything. I mean, like you said, number one, gone.
0: First Amendment, gone. Dead. This is how easy it happens. You think this shit's going to last forever? This United States experiment? It took them nine years to take away the First Amendment. Nine freaking years. And don't even get us started, we'll get to these in later episodes, but keep in mind the Sedition Act came back in 1918. It made a re- reappearance in 1918. The Smith Act, to, to fight communism, took place in 1954-ish. Someone could correct me in the comments if you so choose. Patriot Act 1 and 2? There is a common thread here all in the name of national security. Yes, manufacture a foreign threat out of freaking nowhere because of your own bad behavior and then punish your own citizens by taking away their individual liberties and rights under the auspices of national security. And when you take those away, you're gaining more and more control for the federal entity and all of the various bloated state agencies that are now attached to it. And it started nine years after the damn constitution was signed. section 3 it's not even as good as the first two I, I i god you can't even say anything that challenges the united states government <sighs> all right section 3 the accused can defend themselves if they get in court well that's nice if if you're apprehended and your life is thrown upside down and you end up in a court you're allowed to defend yourself mm-hmm. i wonder how well that goes yeah. I mean, I I mean, our court systems are not corrupt at all. I mean, they're pretty pure, right? Like we're all wearing blindfolds and there's like a, a measure in one of our hands. And yeah, it's cool. Cool. Section four of this act that destroys the first amendment remained in effect through March 3rd of 1881. That's basically what it says. So it's not meant to last forever. But the fact – this sets a precedent that they can do this now whenever they want, and that's why I brought up Sedition Act of 1918, Smith Act of 1950, whatever.
1: Wait, it stays into effect until 1881?
0: Oh, excuse me, 1781. Okay. That's my fault. Yeah, 1781. I want to stress not every one of the architects was on board with this. Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, who we're not real big fans of either, but we will give them their just due credit on this one. And this is where Madison is clearly no longer a Federalist. He's he's given up that cause. But Madison and Jefferson are furious. They see... They weren't even huge fans of the Bill of Rights themselves. Madison, he writes the Virginia plan and he tosses the Bill of Rights in there as like the concession. But he sees like, if you're going to write something, at least stick to it, assholes. Mm -hmm. And he calls them out. They craft things called the Kentucky and Virginia Resolutions. Basically, these resolutions state that individual states themselves have the right to declare federal laws unconstitutional. And this becomes a massive political debate, both at the federal level and the state level. The good news is that Madison and Jefferson were fighting to preserve the integrity of the Bill of Rights. The bad news is the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions would later be used by the slave economy of the South for states' rights. That's the bad news. So they set that precedent as well. I don't – Jefferson was a slave owner, but we know he was – we've had episodes on him where he kind of debated whether it was right or wrong. Madison, not necessarily known for – his, his abolitionist tendencies either, but we do know that, that their original intent of the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions was to challenge the Alien and Sedition Acts not to keep slavery. We do know that. So their resolutions get flipped decades later. There are a number of people that are prosecuted under these acts. We even talked about like Alexander Hamilton in his episode at the time when he was in New York, shut down every other publisher except the ones he, the one he was affiliated with in New York City during this time to basically spread his asinine propaganda. Like that all happened in New York City. But uh, one of the more, uh, the most severe prosecution, at least that I was able to find, um, was a guy named David Brown who in 1798 led a protest uh, group in Massachusetts, and it was just a protest group. They set up a liberty pole where they hung like. Basically Basically, banner-staying no stamp act, which we already talked about. The stamp act is resurrected by Hamilton. No sedition act, no alien bills, and no land tax. Downfall to the tyrants of America. Peace and retirement to the president. Long live the vice president. Um, which at the time the VP was 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 TJ. Anyway, after not being able to afford his own bail, he's prosecuted for this. He's asked uh, at a later trial to basically sell out the rest of his protest friends. He didn't, so he, sign- uh, he ends up being fined about 480 bucks and spends 18 months in prison, which back then was actually kind of a long time. Other examples can be found on sources that I looked at, ranging from, like, our own archives.gov to even, like, Wikipedia, where they're, like, calling, like, George Washington an and things like that, that people were, were essentially prosecuted on. But uh, I'll let our listeners, because this episode is getting a little long of the tooth, I'll let our listeners go research people that were eventually prosecuted under the Alien and Sedition Acts. And like I said, some of them are, are even kind of funny, what they said against the government and the fact that they're fined hundreds of dollars and spend, like, months in prison for— For making jokes in some cases. But um, I want Nick to kind of close us out here after we went through like federalism in practice, foreign relations, militarism, war, and then a return to legislation. Our sociologists should kind of take us out now that I've laid out this history.
1: What do you think? I think like we talked about, like, and like I stressed just a few minutes ago, this just lays the groundwork for where we are today. Like you said, we haven't gone awry. We haven't abandoned our values. Like, this is it. This is what was the foundation was laid in the in the beginnings of this country. And it it still exists. Like, have there been slight reforms, women's suffrage, civil rights, et cetera, along the way? Absolutely but we're still seeing the inequalities and the oppression and just i mean the xenophobia that we could go on forever from the time when this country was founded i mean it's this is it i don't, I don't even know how what to add to that i mean I, I think that's it anything else from you
0: i talked a lot so let's uh, let's take it
1: home <laughs> all right then that'll be it catch us online revolutionandideology.com on twitter at revanideology Uh, We also have a YouTube channel. If you're not listening to this there, you can find us on YouTube. Just search for Revolution Ideology. If you want to support what we do, you can do so on Patreon. Though, honestly, the best thing you can do to support us is to tell a friend or share us on social media and uh, tell someone that you found this awesome podcast and that you love it and leave us a rating on your podcast app. Uh, yeah, that's it. I'm You can Nick. tell them you hate it too. Yeah, cool whatever.
0: Talk. We we want haters to actually listen. Yeah, so, yeah just yeah, tell them. Just tell
1: them about it. I don't yeah, care if you like yeah. it or hate we it. We want yeah. the
0: haters. It's they're they're hilarious. I'm anyway. assuming
1: if you hate it, you didn't make it this far. But yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah I'm Nick. I'm Jared. Later.